This morning, our scripture passage is Romans 14, 1 through 12. As for the one of who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we, for we, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together as we enter Romans 14 uh, during this sermon portion of our service. Father, may the words of my mouth and the words that hit our ears, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Perhaps the theme verse of the book of Romans was in... 1 verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, this power of God that Paul has been talking about showing us through 11 chapters of gospel depths that those who are sinful and deserve the wrath of God can, can be moved into right standing with God, can have the very righteousness of God, that those who were dead in their sins can be alive to God in Christ Jesus, that those who deserve condemnation can have justification in Christ, that those who were under the reign of sin and death can now live under the reign of grace, that those who had condemnation because of their sins have no condemnation in Christ Jesus, those who are destined to face the destruction that comes from God now have future glory because of their hope and faith in Christ. And that power has been the power that Paul has made sure that he's put on display in gospel depths for 11 chapters. But church, that power of that gospel is not only displayed and seen in individual salvation. That power The very power of the gospel is seen and displayed, not in just individual salvation, but in the community of people that it 
forms together. Francis Schaeffer said this, he said, Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful, and get this, must be there. The gospel doesn't just create a person, recreate a person, it recreates a people. And those go together. So the, the power of the gospel should be on display in your life, Christian, from moving you from life to death, from being in Adam to being in Christ, but it also should be on display in our lives together as Christians, of creating a people who've moved from life to, or from death to life. Paul didn't stop with chapter 11, did he, in the book of Romans? We went through gospel depths in 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and he didn't stop there and say, we're done. He, he goes on with chapter 12, and in chapter 12 he says, all right, in, in view of what God has done, in view of these gospel depths, let's live all-in lives before God. And guess what that all-in life looks like? Those all-in lives are all-in lives that are lives in community with others who are all-in as well. And this is a community that will display the power of the gospel in its belonging to one another. You, you remember chapter 12, verse 5. Look back a page, right? We are many, but we're one body in Christ. We're individually members of one another. We belong to one another. We're to be this community of people, if we're in Christ, who display genuine love for one another, who honor and even outdo one another in showing honor, who live in harmony with one another. And so there's in that a displayed power from the gospel in our midst as this people, a gospel people now, live together in community. And that community is a community that has great unity because of how it was formed and who formed it. But that unity doesn't take away any of the diversity that exists among us. All right, this unity displays the gospel power, gospel's power in a way because it's unity in the midst of diversity. Huh? Paul writes to a very diverse church, diverse in age, diverse in background, diverse in, in what they would be doing with their lives and spending their lives on. Like there's great diversity in this church that he writes to. And he writes to them and he expects and wants from them this unity in the midst of that diversity because he wants unity, not, not uniformity, but unity in the midst of their diversity because of the gospel's power. And so how does a community do that? How do we do that? How do we do that if we have this diverse community? How do we maintain unity? How can we sustain unity? How can we be a gospel people, a gospel community together while holding a lot of diversity? Including a lot of differences of opinions, differences of practice. Different, I mean, we, could, we could multiply the differences. They, they are many. How, how do we maintain that? And that's what Paul starts to get at in chapter 14. How do we exist together, live together, live in harmony, showing genuine love, outdo one another, showing honor to one another in the midst of our differing opinions and views and practices. And here's what he begins to tell us. We refrain from judgment, refrain from despising others because there's only one Lord and judge and whether we live or die, we're to live fully to him. And so Paul, in addressing, and we know this, right? We, we, you know this if you're in community at all. Like There's differences in how we think about things, how we do things convictions that we have, right? different consciences, there's difference of opinions, there's different practices. And, and Paul begins to address that. And here's how he starts in verse 1 of chapter 14. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. Weak in faith. 
Now, when you hear that, that word, weak in faith, you shouldn't see in that or hear in that that Paul somehow thinks that, that some who are called weak have their salvation in jeopardy, that their salvation is somehow in doubt. And Christians can take great hope in the truth that the book of Romans has given to us so far, that it's not the strength of our faith, it's not the purity of our faith, it's not the intensity of our faith that justifies or saves us. We, we know this and we should know it so well and you need to hear again that it's the, the object of your faith that saves you. Your, your faith's purity doesn't save you. It's intensity doesn't save you. It's strength doesn't, it's faith in Jesus that saves. That's what justifies. Justification in Romans is by faith alone. You can have right standing with God by faith in Christ alone. Not a strong faith, just faith in Christ alone. He alone saves. And so the weak are not, are not those who hold salvation of uh, faith plus something else. He, he, he's not referring to that. If he were referring to that, I think he'd do something more like he did in Galatians. You, you remember what he does to the Galatians, the churches of Galatia, uh, when he writes to them in chapter 1, he says there are people preaching another gospel, not that there's another gospel, and let them be anathema. And he goes, all right, write this whole letter to make sure you know that there is no other gospel, that there's only one gospel. You're saved by faith alone. And it's not his tone at all here. He doesn't do any of those things here. And so we can know that whatever he means by weak, he, he's not saying that these, the weak are, are in jeopardy with their salvation, that they're somehow uh, in between being justified fully and, and not being justified at all. That's not what he's getting at. Another gospel is a gospel he would say doesn't save. He would have made sure, if that's what's going on here, that he says, uh, you need to not believe that other gospel. Another gospel doesn't save. Believing in, believing in another gospel isn't weak faith in Paul's eyes. It's no faith. It's wrong faith. A apparently the weak weren't, weren't in that category. So this category of weak was not a salvation matter. And because of thinking about even the, the letter to the Galatians, we, we can know that that apparently the weak, whatever they hold in their faith and practice and conviction, they're, they're not trying to push it on others. That's what was happening in Galatia. They were taking, hey, faith plus circumcision, faith plus some of the law, and they were trying to then push that and say, hey, you want to be saved? This is how you do it. And Paul says, uh-uh, none of that. He, he doesn't do that here. So apparently even the weak or the strong, they're not taking their convictions and saying, you're going to need this in the church in order to be saved. Or else I think he would have come down a little bit harder than he does here. Now, the issues that Paul seems to begin to deal with here in this section are not of gospel-level importance. They're not of salvation importance. They're of opinions. They're of convictions. They're of practices. They're matters of conscience, we could say. These are matters that those in the same church, in the same local body, could disagree with and not lose unity. Or Paul wouldn't have written some of these words that he's writing here. They can disagree on these things and still live together as Christian community, as the gospel people, in community. They can still have fellowship with one another. And so the weak aren't necessarily weak morally, as if they're living less moral lives. The weak apparently aren't dealing with matters of sin, or Paul would have, he dealt with that, didn't he? Cast off sin and works of darkness. That's what we do with sin. That doesn't seem to be what's going on here. The weak aren't dealing with that. The weak then are those who are weak in some sort of understanding of, of the Christian life and of Christian truth, of Christian understanding and how it works its way out into life, how it works its way out into practice. There's some sort of deficiency in understanding that, that is coming out in their way they're living that is, is known and it's, 
implications of the gospel haven't sunk down in deep enough for their understanding, right understanding of Christian truth and doctrine of the gospel to work its way out in their practice of faith. And so they have real faith, but it seems to be deficient in some ways in terms of understanding and working its way out in all of its implications in their lives. So when he says weak, he is not speaking of a, a category within the church that are somehow lesser than others have lower standing than others before God. There is no diminishment of status or honor here, right? He already said, outdo one another showing honor, not, well, outdo one another except for the weak. Let love be genuine except for toward the weak. He doesn't do any of that. He also doesn't expect the weak to just be put on the shelf, like you're weak, like sit over here and learn some things until we can get you ready to go out and play the game. He doesn't do that. Here's what he says. As for the one who is weak in faith, here's what you do, welcome him. Welcome him. The appeal is to the strong. It's on the strong to do this, right? So, I, I don't know. I'm not going to label you category of weak or strong today. I'll let you, if you think you're strong, here's what God is telling you to do. Welcome the one who is weak. You're to move toward the weak. Receive the weak. Admit the weak. And, and the idea of welcoming here is, is an idea of intimacy, Closeness in relationship, uh, of admitting to one's house or table to be close around us. We're, we're not talking about, you know, like being friends with them over the, the interwebs, right? We're, t- we're talking about sitting down with them at the table with them. That's the kind of welcoming, discussing things with them, talking to them, knowing them, knowing them enough to know they have some differences from me. They have a difference of opinion, a different of conscience, a different of practice in their way of life. Like, You're welcoming enough to know those things. You can see their life and how it's being worked out. And he says of them, you need to willingly embrace them. Receive them into your lives. Knowing that there are some differences and gaps in thinking, you willingly move toward them and embrace them and receive them. And the context that is clear here is the context within the same local body, the same local church. This is where the weak and the strong coexist together as gospel community because of the power of the gospel. They belong together. They belong, we can just say together, to one another. The weak belong to the strong, the strong belong to the weak. They belong to one another. That's the context that Paul is addressing. And here's what he's saying. There should be embraced fellowship here. Embraced closeness. Embraced belonging. Embraced sharing of life around the table. There's welcomed intimacy in relationship enough to know and share life with those who have differences and that you know that they exist and you still have the fellowship together. And in those differences, here's what Paul says. Knowing the temptations of the strong and the weak, he's going to specifically speak to them. He says to the strong, welcome. But knowing the temptation of the strong, he says this. But not to quarrel over opinions. The the welcome is extended. You're invited into life. You're willingly embraced. But not to quarrel. You don't, if you're strong, you don't target the weak for correction. You don't like... I'm going to send up the radar and make sure I find the weak because I can take care of them. I'll make sure I address that. It's not what he says. Not targeted for correction. They're not seen as an opportunity or a project. You welcome them not to quarrel over opinions. You don't embrace them and then pepper them with questions that provokes their, your differences. You welcome them. And you don't welcome them and then pressure them in this specific, specific area that you disagree with and, and kind of scrutinize their choices and lead them to some undue pressure and burden as they start to like, well, maybe I've had it all wrong all the way. That's, that's exactly what he says not to do. You welcome them and then you give them room and space to belong 
and to hold their difference along with you. In other words, he, he's calling for a life and community where the strong and the weak exist together in a life that's, that's really patient to one another. That's willing, if you're strong, to hold your tongue in order to not quarrel or pressure or give some undue burden to those who are weak. I love one commentator's uh, comment here when he says this. Employ strength to sustain their weakness. For among the people of God, there are some weaker than others who except they are treated with great tenderness and kindness will be discouraged and become at length alienated from religion. Can we just be honest and say that's probably more of a problem and trouble than whatever it is that weak, the weak are dealing with? Perhaps like me, you've heard far too many stories of someone being pushed out or pushed away or held at distance in a community because they were pounced on when they shared a difference. They were pounced on when they shared, again, not salvation matter, not talking about walking in sin, we're talking about other things here. They, they shared that and they were pounced on, they were quarreled with, and they were pushed away. Or they saw it happen in community and they thought, I don't want any part of that. And so I'm done. And church, that not, not to be us. We, we ought to look out for the weak. That's what Paul says here. Look out for them. Look for them to welcome them in, not to quarrel with them and push them away. And so ask the simple question, are we known for welcoming or quarreling? And both the context that Paul commands us in and even the command to welcome, they inform us, don't they? The, the weak are embraced in fellowship. They're not kept at a distance. They're not saying like, well, I might fight with them, so I better not be around them. That's not what Paul says. They're not welcomed and then sparred with, seen as an object or a project to correct and train. Now the gospel starts informing us and informs this community. And what the gospel does is it forms a people who give this place where we have a community of safety willing to give people a, a space and time to hold some differences and still be learning and following Jesus together. We have this community of safety that, no, there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. And if they're trusting in Christ, there's no condemnation for them either. And so now all of a sudden I can give you plenty of leeway and space and time because there's no condemnation for us and we can work this thing out together. We give space and time to one another so that we can figure out how to walk in newness of life that we've been given in Christ together. And anyone who is strong should know that strength doesn't come quickly. Strength and faith is not a quick process. It only comes over time. There's a slow, growing process. And if you're strong, here's, here's what Paul's getting at. Just give room for that. It didn't happen quick with you. If you're strong, and it's not going to happen quick, and quick for most people. There's this necessary knowledge just for, for salvation that's there, but everything else for those who are weak, they, they might just know that Jesus is the one who saves me from my sin, and that may be it. How do we work this thing out? They may not know. Everything else might be fuzzy. And here's what Paul's saying. That's okay. Welcome them, not to quarrel with them. Because that could be the temptation. We're not to press on every single Truth that is out there at the exact same time with the same amount of force and pressure. And knowing how to navigate those things and how to work through that takes a lot of wisdom. But here's what we know about wisdom. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says it's the fools that are quarreling. Or, or James chapter 3 says wisdom from above, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. 
Does that describe the wisdom that we're showing and displaying in our community? Not quarreling, peaceable, gentle towards one another. The, the truth is, is the more wisdom we have, the, the more grace that we've been given, the, the stronger our faith should lead us to being more patient, more gentle, more careful with our words. Make sure that we wouldn't be going in a way that would be harsh or abrasive to those who are weak. Leaving room for, for those who have and hold some differences than us because we have this long process of growth, we can give room for them to grow, which makes room for our unity in the midst of our great diversity. It gives room for those who are strong and weak to belong together. You see, the, there will always be a diverse church. That's how God made it. That's what he does. He calls people from all over the spectrum in every kind of way. There's always going to be these differences of opinions and practices and maturity. And we could go on and on and on. And that's what Paul's aiming at. Like, no, they can coexist. Paul dealt with that too. Look at verse 2. Here's some of the differences that they had. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Well, you, you always heard that if you eat your vegetables, you'd be strong. But I'm not sure what Paul says about that here. Right, the, the Roman church was a church that had both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And within that diversity alone, there could be a couple different things that are at play that are coming out when he's talking about eating here. Right, the, the Jews, in the Old Testament, they had dietary restrictions. They were people set apart for the holiness of God to, to point to God's greatness and holiness. And they were people set apart for that. And part of that included some dietary restrictions. Jesus comes onto the scene, and what does he say in Mark 7? He declares all foods clean. He's the one who came and fulfilled the law, setting it aside so that the Mosaic law, we could say, no longer binds. But the Jews, who'd, who'd grown up in this, who, who had this as part of their life, they had a hard time with some of the new gospel realities, some of the new realities in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that were, that were now the implications of their lives. They had a hard time disentangling, like, righteous living was this, but now in Christ, righteous living is this. They had a hard time disentangling what, what that meant and where to put all these things and how to practice these things and all the implications that were with that. And so the gospel realities, they had a hard time figuring out how does this work in practice with all this stuff that I have back here. But another thing that could be at play was the same kind of idea that was at play in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, where there was meat that was offered, and there was this question of, of should we partake in this meat or not? And, and the question of this meat in 1 Corinthians was, this meat was offered in sacrifices to idols, pagan places, right? Idols that didn't exist. And, and so Christians in Corinth were dealing with like, well, should I eat that meat or not? Because I know what it was used for. It may have come from the temple. And so even though Paul says that their idols have no real existence, they, they had some entanglement in, internally, right? Yeah, I know there's no real idols. I know the one true living God now, but I, I don't know about this. What do I do here? There was some entanglement for some. And so he says, like, if that's your entanglement there, like, just don't eat meat. That's okay. The, the matter is plain to Paul. It's plain to Paul who had this Jewish upbringing. What can we eat? What can we not eat? It was plain to Paul. That's why they're... they're I mean, he does imply here, there's a position here that is weaker, that is not living out in the full implications of the gospel. It happens to be a position I like, right? Eating your own vegetables seems to be the weaker position. I'm like, yeah. add some meat into your diet. It's good. But Paul knew that. 
He, he, and he actually, I think, he, he doesn't instruct here. I think what he thinks is that that, that stronger position and understanding and implication of the gospel could be worked out in plain light of the gospel. Like he, he has given them what they've needed in, in the book of Romans. They've seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like from that, I think he thinks that they can work this out. And, and because that's true, here's what he does. He, he doesn't quarrel, even though there's a stronger position here. He doesn't fight for it. Look at verse three. He says, instead of quarreling, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Right? He, he knows the paths of temptation that are here for the strong and for the weak. The strong, there, there's a temptation to, to despise, to look down on, to feel superior to, to quarrel, to be pushy, to be harsh. And he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains it. The temptation maybe of the, the weak here is, is the temptation to judge and be critical. To, to think of the strong, that they're not as committed as I am. They're not as serious as I am. And I think maybe, perhaps, the, he was, the way he's going to go in this context is like, the weak are looking to the strong. So if they're doing that, maybe they're not even a Christian. Maybe they don't even trust in Christ. And both temptations receive a let not, right? They're prohibited. Let not the strong despise. Let not the weak uh, be judgmental. Maybe if you're a Christian, you, you can understand some of these things. Like when you first became a believer, what'd you do with all your old movies and records? Right? It's like, didn't everybody have like, we're burning all that music in those movies stage? And we thought anybody that watched anything that wasn't the passion of the Christ was surely not a Christian? Like that's kind of the judgmental spirit that Paul's saying, hey, let's not do that. You don't need to go that direction. And yet, here's what he says here. All of us need this. These let-nots are things that he says, don't do this. And, and I think we both need, we all need both applications because there's probably areas that we're strong and areas that we're weak. And so we're going to need here, don't despise, don't judge. We're going to need those both aimed at our heart because there's probably areas where we're weak and strong here. And yet, it does seem as if it's on the strong to welcome, but here in verse 3, it's on the weak to not judge. And that's what he's going to keep going to. He directs the end of verse 3 at the weak, and then he's going to go into verse 4. The, the why. Right? Verse 3, uh, the one who abstains shouldn't pass judgment. The one who abstains here in this category is weak, should not pass judgment on the one who eats. And then he tells them why. Verse 4, here's why the weak shouldn't be judgmental and critical. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I say, if, if you're going to be judgmental and you're going to judge others, that, that's a way of putting yourself in God's place. Let's just know so clearly that's not a place that we're supposed to be in. That's not a place we're supposed to attempt to be in. We need to let God be God and us submit to him, not try to take his place. There's only one judge, and he doesn't need help. And so the weak are called to recognize there's some differences here that the strong, if they're eating freely and have no worries about it, that they are going to answer to God. And so they recognize that and they stop their judgment. They, they have a master. I'm not it. And so I'm okay with that. I can be okay. I'm not going to judge that. And notice what this master does. He is the one who upholds and he makes them stand. 
This is the principle that Christians are to hold in the midst of differences. If we're going to coexist and have unity in the midst of our diversity and differences, we're going to need to know this, that the Lord is judged, the Lord is the one who upholds, the Lord is the one who makes any of us stand at all. God is judge, he is master, and so we withhold judgment. The Jewish Christians, they, they would have had a hard time letting go of disentangling what they'd known, what they'd been taught, what they thought was righteous and holy living. They would have had a hard time disentangling that from how now Christ has changed life and the implications of the gospel. They would have had a hard time disentangling food laws from righteous living, living even with the gospel. And then they would have had a hard time thinking that the Gentiles don't even have to bother with that. Paul doesn't seem to be worried about that at all. They would have had a hard time dealing with that. Church, there's a reason why the Judaizers, in the book of Galatians, there's a reason why they took a foothold. There's a reason why they had some momentum. There's a reason why they had a crowd. It's because they had something that, that felt right in some ways, that, that had some momentum, that picked up some truths. Not all of them, and all the implications of the gospel weren't worked out, but it did pick up something that was true. The Jews, they, they had a heritage that was easy to live into. We are the people that, that eat differently. And so it was easy for them to live into that. We should know this too. We, we don't say it in that same way, right? Like, we're Jews, we don't eat pork. We might say, hey, We've been doing this way at this church for the last 125 years. So we're going to keep doing this way because that's righteous living. And these are the kinds of things that can easily divide. We've been doing this thing for the last 125 years as a tradition or as a something we've been doing with no chapter and verse can be divisive, just as divisive as you need to eat this and not eat this. The, the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the musical... They sing this great song at the beginning, tradition, tradition, you know, and I'm not going to sing it, I'll stop. In the, in the song, at the beginning, they have an argument of, they talk about how tradition is playing out in their social life, and, and one of them thinks that there's a problem is, you know, they have this trade, and some say it was a horse, and the others say it was a mule, and so there's horse, mule, you know, that goes back and forth. Uh, that was the thing that was like, tradition had played such a part that they were divided over something so simple like that, like a horse and a mule. And that is the same kind of root temptation, root idolatry that can exist in our hearts as well. We've done it this way for 125 years. Why would we do anything different? How could righteous living look any differently than this? And those are the kinds of things that can divide us too. So where are we tempted? Where are we tempted to judge? Where are you tempted to judge? Where are you tempted to divide? Where are you tempted to despise another? Maybe it is on diet. The things you eat or don't eat. I, I don't eat gluten or I don't eat sugars or maybe it's school. The, the God's holy path for schooling is the one that I'm choosing or not. How about the music you listen to? Again, maybe everybody else go through like we're going to burn all this kind of music phase of their and we're judgmental to our others. Maybe that's just me. Books you read, whether you're using oils for your health or not. Mask, no mask. Should I take this shot? Should I not take this shot? I mean, all these things are out there. Are these the things that we're tempted to despise one another if they do something different than us or judge another and be critical if they do something different than us? Those should be all on the table for us. Where are we tempted to despise another or to judge another? And all those matters, those are not matters of salvation. If you came in thinking they're matters, they're not matters of salvation. And where they're not matters of salvation or sin, sin we know what to do with. We cast that off. Matters of salvation. Here's what we say, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If we're talking about different matters, matters that aren't matters of salvation and sin, but matters of varying levels of 
of importance for the Christian life. They're not matters of indifference, but they do have varying levels of temptation. There are places that we, in our minds and in our hearts, we we make out our own position as superior to another. We, We start to think that our position and our practice is more righteous to another, and it leads us towards judgment. That's what Paul's getting at here. But in the Christian community, the only measure of righteousness isn't our position or our opinion or what we think. It is Jesus alone. He is the measure of true righteousness, right? Not us, not any individual. This is why this is a great question. He says, who are you? What a great question. Should we ask that this morning of ourselves? Who are you? Who, we could say it this way, who do you think you are? (laughs) Here's how we know, right? We don't talk about this as our identity, but we should. You're not the master. You're not the judge. You're not the one who others depend upon to stand or fall. That's God. Our correction is not the thing that others need in order to stand in the end. Our our teaching is not the thing that is needed in order for people to make it to the end. Our correction or teaching or, or correcting the weak is not the thing that's getting others past the finish line. Our view is not needed for others to stand. God can handle that. So we hold these truths. Paul is getting at here that there is a master, there is a judge, we're not it, and we hold that truth rightly for the sake of community. The strong and a weak here get this great, like, you know, this embedded promise that it's the Lord who upholds them. He is able to uphold their lives. Not another one, not another person. He doesn't uphold, I don't uphold you. You don't uphold, Christ upholds us. It's God who's the one who upholds us. He is the one who will make us stand. What a great truth. And he will make us stand. Did you see that promise in here? He will be upheld. If he's the Lord's, we know these great promises that future glory is the destination of those who have fully trusted in Jesus. He is the one who upholds. He is the one who will make him stand. And so we withhold despising and we withhold judgment in the midst of differences in community because he's the upholder. It makes us hold our differences carefully, doesn't it? If we're not the judge, if he's the one that's going to decide, if he's the master, it makes us hold our differences carefully. Trying to be the ones who still are, are living out chapter 12, verse 10, where it says that you need to love one another with this brotherly affection. Love with affection, don't despise. And what does he say? Outdo one another, showing honor, verse 10, not passing judgment. Now, diet... We wish it was restricted to only diet. Diet wasn't the only issue and the difference that he had uh, in the Roman church that he was dealing with. There was the problem of the calendar. And we know in our day how important the calendar is. The calendar might dictate everything. It will show you a lot about where your heart actually is. And he says, hey, the calendar is an issue too in the midst of community. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice the parallels of verse 2. One person believes. And verse 5, one person esteems. And I think in a way, we could say that Paul is coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Verses 2 through 4 is kind of a perspective of an individual looking outward to community. An individual holding others who have differing, differing opinions and practices in community, holding 
you know, those things together. How am I to work and look toward them? And he says, don't quarrel, welcome, don't judge, don't despise. You're not the Lord, you're not the judge. And in verses 5 and 6, it's a little bit flipped, right? It's inward. How do you hold your own differences in the midst of community? And he says, be convinced in your own mind and do everything to the honor of God, giving thanks to him. There were differences in the Roman church in terms of calendar. And so how does an individual hold that in the midst of all that's going on? He says, I want you to be fully convinced in your own mind. I want you to do everything to the honor and glory of God. The other way, when he says, when they hold differences from you, don't judge, don't despise. And so the differences here were, again, probably some Jewish Christians that were in their midst that would say, well, I think that we need to observe the Sabbath. Or maybe the Passover or other feasts and important days that were important for them for a long time. Like, how could we just set those things aside? Even if Christ has come and we trust in him, I, I don't know, I'll see how this goes. And, and again, Paul doesn't wade into the issue here, does he? He doesn't give his judgment. I mean, he does maybe, maybe subtly he's saying, here's the better way. He, he doesn't wade into the issue because, again, he, he doesn't see this different observing of days as a matter of salvation and, and as a matter of them walking in sin and, and forcing and putting pressure on one another. And so he doesn't wade into the issues. But he is still instructive. Here's what he says. Be fully convinced. Be fully convinced. You, you have to be all in on this decision. Like you have thought through all of this. You've thought through the gospel and its implications and how this works out in your life. And so you're fully convinced and you do it this way. And if you're fully convinced in the right way, he says you're not going to quarrel. You're not going to judge. You're not going to despise. You're going to do it to the glory of God. And Paul, he, he models that here, right? He has a view. Make no mistake, Paul has a view here. But what does he do with those who have a different view? He holds them on their best light. They're doing it to the glory of God, is what he says here. That, that's how we should hold one another every time. Like when we look at each other in community and we have differences of opinion, we hold one another in their best light. Like that may be different than me, but I think they're doing it to the glory of God. And we hold them up in their best light. And what he goes after, instead of a particular view, is he goes after a motive. He looks at their motive. He says, you hold this view, you hold this view, all is to be done to the glory of God, to honor God, to give thanks to God. One who is motivated to honor God can eat or not eat, even with others. Can observe a day and not observe a day, even with others. And if they're truly doing it to the honor of God, then he says, here's, here's what will happen, you'll give thanks to God. So being fully convinced means you can observe, you can eat, you can do all to the honor of God, you can give thanks to God. You can, you can take that food in and you can say thank you to God. And if you can do that, fully convinced, Paul has no issue. But the diet and the calendar matter. In places of liberty, with, with no biblical command, no biblical principle, no requirement from the scripture, Paul still expects those places to be unto the Lord, to be honoring to God. He says it three times in verse 6. To honor the Lord, to the honor of the Lord, to the honor of the Lord. What does he want them to live to in every aspect of their lives, eating, drinking, whatever they do? He wants them to do it to the honor of God. It's the reverse of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 18, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who were reversing things, right? Although what could be known about God was plain, they didn't honor God. They didn't give thanks to God. That's the root of sin. We're meant to honor. We're made to honor and give thanks to God, the one who created us. But they didn't do that. Instead, they served and gave thanks to and worshiped created things over the creator. And Paul says, Christians don't do that. Everything they do, they know that it comes from God and they can give honor to God and thanks to God. It's a reversal of what we saw in chapter 1. 
There are no areas of our lives that are not to be aimed at this very purpose of honoring God, bringing glory to God. After all, we're the ones who said, in light of the mercies of God, what do we do? We say, God, here's my life. I'm all in. It's all yours. It belongs to you. Here I am as a living sacrifice to you. And even daily, ordinary kind of things like eating. He says, ought to be done to the honor of God. So whatever you do, be fully convinced that you can do it to the honor of God because you belong wholly to him and you can thank God for him, for it. If, if you're doing something that you can't say thank you God for that thing, then question what you're doing and see if the implications of the gospel are being worked out in your practice rightly. A community of people with differences who all are doing the things that we're doing individually, all of us doing it all to the honor and the glory of God, is a community of people that can maintain unity in the midst of great diversity. And what that does is when we're all individually doing things that might be different in practice, but all with the same motive to the honor and glory of God, what that can do, and we can dwell together in that kind of diversity and unity, is it highlights the power of our unity and the source of our unity. It makes us look like a people who are all to one thing, not for us, not to us, but for the glory of God do we exist. It highlights his greatness. Rome would expel, just prior to this letter, we think they expelled the Jews and the churches to welcome them. You know, when Paul writes to the church, fellowship was not something that was unique to the church. It was not unique in Rome. Religion wasn't unique in Rome. There was all kinds of religion. But what was unique was the character of the fellowship of Christians. The uniqueness, the distinctness was in the character of their unity. One author says that it was the incendiary character of the early Christian fellowship, which was amazing to the contemporary Romans. And it was amazing precisely because there was nothing in their experience that was remotely similar to it. Religion they had in vast quantities, but it was nothing like this. Much of the uniqueness of Christianity in its original emergence consisted of the fact that simple people could be amazingly powerful when they were members of one another. As everyone knows, it is almost impossible to create a fire with one log, even if it is a sound one, while several poor logs may make an excellent fire if they stay together as they burn. And he says this, that the miracle of the early church was that of poor sticks making a grand conflagration, a grand fire. I had to look that one up too. When individuals are all living individually, for the glory of God and are living as we're meant to for the glory of God together, and all of a sudden, we, we, we are lighting up the world to look at him, pointing to him for the glory of God. We are the kind of people then who will do what it happened in the early church, will turn the world upside down, doesn't know what to do with such a people. Others can take differences and break fellowship. Christians are saying, we still belong because we hold them in their best light and we're doing all for the glory of God. In areas of difference without a biblical command or principle or differences of opinion, we don't push on others. We're convinced in our own minds and we want to honor God. So are we doing all for the honor of God? That's the right thing to do because verse 7, he goes on to say, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. You think of what Paul has said in other places. like, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself to me. He says to the Philippians, to live is Christ, not Paul. To live is Christ. 
He says to the Corinthians, you and I, we were bought at a price. So what do we need to do? Honor God with our very lives, our bodies. And Paul writes to those, when he writes to the church of Rome, he writes to those who know that they don't belong to themselves anymore. Remember chapter 6? You've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Now the life you live, you live as this new life in Christ Jesus, this spirit-filled life. Or chapter 12, he says, guess what? Your life is a living sacrifice, sacrifice to God. It's all his. You're all in. And so whether we live or whether we die, we're holy the Lord. Right? We're unto the Lord. We're doing all to the honor of the Lord. He is, after all, Lord. That's what he gets at in verse 7. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the foundational, probably the most ancient confession of the Christian faith there is. And it is foundational for us as individual Christians. It is foundational for us as a community of Christians. It is the foundational reality of the unity that we can have in the midst of diversity. Truly, in this truth that Jesus is Lord, what binds Christians together is far, far greater than what could divide us. That is a, such a you know, trite saying. People say, well, what binds us is so much greater, right? And it sounds so happy and like, it doesn't seem like that sometimes. And yet, when you want to dig down deep into the roots that Jesus is Lord, that truth that will shake everything in the end. And that, he says, is actually what holds us. And so we, it might be a trite saying or not, but we could say, yeah, what binds us is so much greater than what divides us because Jesus is Lord. And he says, we live unto the Lord and we even die unto the Lord. Death is even to be unto the Lord. And you know what? We can do that because he is Lord even there. He's Lord even over death. And death will recognize his lordship. Verse 9, he goes on to say, None of us lives to himself, verse 7. None of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus is Lord of all. And he references here the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the very cornerstones of the Christian faith, the very cornerstone and foundation of our Christian community, of our fellowship, and of our unity together. And the end he gives us here, because Jesus is Lord, because of his life, death, and resurrection, the end of the Christian life, whether you're living or whether you're dying, is meant to show that Jesus is Lord. It's all meant to be to the honor of, and glory of God. And that truth, again, helps us in the midst of all of our differences that we have and hold. And so we need to keep asking, all right, if this is foundational, if this is foundational for my faith and for our community, does the Lordship of Jesus have more bearing on my relationships than anything else? Does it have more weight? Does it hold more weight in my relationships and community than anything else? Jesus is Lord. Is that the thing that holds the most weight in between us? And Jesus is Lord is the very thing that unites us in profound ways. It unites a diverse people to this one true living God. And what unites us truly is more powerful than what divides us because the power of our unity is not found in us and our strength in our unity with one another. It is found in the strength of Jesus, the one who is Lord over all. I love that this thought that Jesus is Lord unites us to a diverse amount of people ages past, present, that are all over the globe. Like we, when we say Jesus is Lord, and that truly is our heart, like we've just been united to a, a great people, a number that we can't even number. That, that's so much greater than the, than, and more powerful than even the, the thought of sojourner. I hope, I hope being a sojourner really unites us and that we're bound closely together. I want that. Let's link arms and let's go make disciples together. We need to be bound tightly together. But what unites us even stronger and to a greater amount of people is Jesus is Lord. 
And it's with that lordship of Jesus in mind that Paul takes us back to where he began and he questions us again to end. All right, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother then? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Here we go again. Who do you think you are? Jesus is not just Lord and Savior. He's Lord and Judge. And since Jesus is Lord and Judge, since he is the one who's going to, we're all going to give an account to, he, Paul can ask these whys. Why? Why do you judge? Why do you despise? And we should ask them too. In light of Jesus as Lord, as his judge, why do you despise? Why do you judge another? And in light of the lordship of Jesus and those questions, it, what it, I think Paul is trying to produce in us is this sense of humility, to be humble. Why, why judge or despise? There's such good questions for both the strong and the weak who are not the Lord and who are not the judge. Paul reminds Christians, there's one judge and you're not it. And all are going to stand before him and give an account to him, not to us, not to any of us. And so why do we pass judgment? Why do we despise? Each is going to give an account. Each is going to give an account for his eating, his drinking, for how he spends his days, what he observes and what he doesn't, for his quarreling, for his judging, for what he does with his calendar, for what he eats. I mean, we could look at all these things. And because that is true in community, it should lead us to a little bit of caution, great care with one another. What Paul does when he does here, each of us is going to give an account. Like, he's not using a scare tactic. In fact, the truth of verses 10 through 12 can actually bring us great assurance. Again, embedded in some, here's how you do life in community, are some great promises from the Lord. Each is going to give an account. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. But what we know here is that it can assure us because he's Lord even there. And then in Christ, I have no condemnation. So in light of him being Lord and judge, it's meant to humble the strong and the weak alike before him. One commentator says that God's towering transcendence should produce a sense of humble unity among his worshipers. Francis Schaeffer was right. Our churches have often been preaching points. I hope our church has great preaching points. But too often they have had little emphasis on community where the exhibition of love has been practiced and is beautiful. May that never describe us. What we're after is to be a church that has great preaching points. It's beautiful in the doctrine we uphold and that we put before one another and is beautiful in our practice, in our lives, with our unity in the midst of great diversity. Jesus is the one who, because he died and rose, can uphold that. He's the one who can make us a weak church stand because he reigns in life and death. And he alone is the one who is worthy for all of us, with differing opinions, whatever we bring into this room, of living for and dying for because he alone is Lord. And it's his lordship that forms us, that fuels us, that maintains our unity, but it takes us willingly kneeling before Jesus. Is that your life? One way that we kneel before him is we do what he says to do. One of the things that he tells us to do together is to take the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of unity. This is a meal that's not just, again, this is not just a meal anywhere. It's a, it's a meal at a particular place with a particular people. 
It's a meal of, of displaying our unity that we're saying together as a people, you're saying Jesus is Lord of my life and we're looking around saying they're saying Jesus is Lord and we're doing this together. It's a meal of unity. We're all saying together Jesus is everything to us. And so if you're coming in and trying to come to this meal with some sort of critical nature or judgmental or despising of, a, of another in here, we say repent before you take this meal. Don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. If there's issues between you and another in this room, like, don't take this meal. Again, don't eat or drink judgment upon yourself. Like, take care of those things first. Fix it first. But if you're saying, man, I'm turning from my judgmental spirit, my despising of one another, I'm laying that down, and I'm saying again, Jesus is Lord, then we do that together. Take the bread and remember Jesus' body that was broken so that we might be a body. Take the juice and remember his blood poured out so that your sins, which are many, were forgiven by him. And do it together, knowing that that means that he has created not just a new individual, but a new people. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need help with this. We are so inclined, Lord, to look around and in pride compare ourselves to each other, compare our choices to others' choices, our preferences to others' preferences. We, in our flesh, want to promote ourselves And it causes us to be judgmental. It causes us, Lord, to be kings of our own little kingdoms, as many would say, Lord. We, we know better. And Father, we need help. We need your spirit to keep our eyes fixed on you. We know, Father, if we're to compare ourselves to anyone, it's, it's Christ. And when we do that, Lord, humility comes quickly. None of us measure up, and none of us ever will, but he does. So, Lord, help us to take on the humility that, that he lived. Help us to overlook weaknesses that are not worth quarreling over. Help us to have the wisdom to know what is worth fighting for and what isn't. As we mature in our faith, Lord, help us to choose those, those hills to die on wisely, God, that they might become mountains and that the ones that aren't worthy, Lord, might be flattened and go away in our lives. Lord, you're worth all of this, and you desire unity in your church. So God, help us all today. We're all guilty. Help us to, to just self-assess and just reflect. And Lord, by your Spirit, search our hearts and show us our weaknesses. Show us those things that we esteem way too highly. And help us instead, Lord, to esteem each other. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.